0: Welcome to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism, coming to you from 2SCR in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Miles Herbert. Joining me in the studio today is Jeff Jarvis, blogger at buzzmachine.com and director of the Tone Knight Center for Entrepreneurial Journalism at City University, New York's Graduate School of Journalism. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And also joining us is co-director for the Center for Media Transition from the University of Technology, Sydney, Professor Derek Wilding. Derek, thanks for being here. Good to be here. Thanks, Miles. So we are speaking the day before the launch of the Center for Media Transition, and I wanted to start today's conversation by talking a bit about that word. I often think about public opinion, governments, and political parties being in transition. But traditionally, I see the media as a constant whose role is giving the
1: political landscape context. Jeff, in what way is the media landscape changing? (laughs) What way isn't it changing, I think, is is the problem. I, like you, like the word transition. I think we we often hear about disruption. Uh, We often hear about revolution. Uh, We hear about evolution. But transition just says that there is a, a change occurring, and that change can be managed better than it is. The circumstances under which media operate have utterly and fundamentally changed. I think we're going through the post-Gutenberg era, and we went through 600 years of media operating under some similar uh, assumptions and mechanisms that are now fundamentally changed, and the net now enables people to talk directly to each other, not necessarily through the medium uh, as middlemen. Uh, It enables people to be understood and served as individuals, members of communities, and these change everything from the business model of media to the relationship media has with the public.
0: Yeah, talk to me a little bit about digital disruption. What role has it played in the vast changes we've seen in the media over the last several years?
2: Derek? Yeah, well, look, we've we've seen it very much in, in the journalism space, but also um, we see it in other areas of media and communication. So if we look at something like the impact of Netflix, we see a, a vastly different media environment here in Australia. And that, that Uh, that means it's great for audiences um, and lots more choices but it also means that there's a real challenge for regulation for law and regulation and the kinds of assumptions that we make about what do we want to achieve on a social level what's regulation for what's law for and some of those new players sit outside of the the kinds of frameworks that we've um, that we've established so Part of what we want to do is look at what that means, what are those rationales that have existed for a long time, and um, how does disruption affect those? Where should we head, what should we do?
0: Jeff, anything on digital disruption?
1: I think we, we've got to take the bull by the proverbial horns and take charge of it. Uh, we've been kind of a victim of disruption, a victim of change. I see too often in media companies try to preserve the way they had it before and the way they knew it before. In the early days of the net, I heard editors from major companies like the New York Times say, as if the the internet were my fault, you know, how how are you gonna keep my newsroom uh, the same size that it was? Well, I'm not gonna guarantee that. Indeed, I think we we operate in a very inefficient industry that copies each other, and that uh, believes that it has an entitlement from nothing less than God to have the same size newsroom, to have the same revenue streams, to operate the same way they used to, and that's just simply not true anymore. At The same time, we also see in the United States, especially trust levels in media are at record lows. All kinds of factors go into that, but we can't just sit back and think that if we just tweak a few dials or beg for some money or some regulation, that we can return to the way it was. Uh, We have to fundamentally reinvent journalism. Every fall with our students, I tell the students there, I'm too old to do this. You're the ones who have to reinvent journalism. You're the ones who have to rethink what it can be. Not change because we must, but change because we can.
0: I think there is a fear that editors have and that people who run newsrooms have. They have a fear of this disruption, and they see it as a problem. Whether you see it as a problem or not, what are some of the things that are driving these changes in the journalism industry?
2: well i think the way in which um news is gathered but but i think jeff's jeff's point is the way in which it's consumed and it's used the way in which people engage with with um media i've just got back from i spent 3 weeks in beijing and i was um talking to a group of students there teaching teaching a group there and i went around the class and i asked them where do you get your news and I think there was one person who said that she um, she got it from television. One person that got it from nu- from newspapers. Everybody was getting their news from WeChat, but people weren't really looking at what's the source of that. There was a there was a sense of, well, I get my news from from WeChat. I get it from speaking to other people. But you know, just that kind of fundamental change in even from say five years ago, we've seen it here in terms of the number of um, journalist positions that have gone from traditional newsrooms. But as Jeff says, in looking at how people use news, how they engage with media, it's, if we don't recognize that, if we don't move with that, then there's no point investing in something that actually people aren't going to use.
1: And every time we think we start to get a sense that we know where the world is going, it changes on us. So we had blogs back in the day, and I was a big proponent of blogs, and I'm, I still am. Uh, Along came Twitter, and journalists didn't quite know what to do with that. (laughs) Blogs took on new forms like live blogging. Then Facebook hits. This is an entirely new thing uh, in how how people communicate with each other. And then, exactly echoing what you found in China, I just came from South America where I heard from journalists in both Colombia and uh, Brazil the impact that WhatsApp is having on public information there. And it's so much more difficult to deal with because it's private conversations. You don't know Mm -hmm. where it comes from. And, and so we cannot sit back and presume that we have this huge vehicle called mass media that enables us to set the public conversation. Now we have manipulators who are everyone from trolls to the alt-right to uh, ISIS to Russia, uh, importantly Russia, uh, that are using the tools of online to manipulate the public conversation. And we in big old media and in government and in politics don't know what the heck to do about it. <laughs>
0: On your own personal blog, Jeff, you wrote about this idea of fake news as merely a symptom of a greater social ill and how our real problem is trust and manipulation. What is a media manipulator, and how are they affecting journalism?
1: There are a few excellent reports out there, one by a think tank in New York called Data and Society. Another is a, uh, believe it or not, I read the NATO handbook on Russian information warfare. (laughs) It's going to sound like I'm wearing a tin hat right now. And I'm not trying to say the Russians are in charge of everything, but the bad guys do all learn from each other. And they have similar methods and in some cases similar motives. And there's a desire to disrupt. Uh, There's a desire to um, polarize populations, a desire to challenge and maybe tear down institutions up to and including governments and nations. And so we see people who for various, I would think nefarious motives, are trying to use these tools to cause trouble. Uh, As Dana Boyd, the head of Dana Society said, sometimes it's for the lulls, sometimes it's for something much bigger. And the motive doesn't always matter. Uh, The techniques are very similar. And so I think we have a short term problem of understanding manipulation better, not becoming the chumps of it, uh, figuring out how to still inform the population around it. The longer term problem is indeed trust. It is indeed that people don't necessarily trust us because we didn't represent them. We didn't listen to them. We didn't uh, reflect their needs and their goals. And the Internet enables us to do those things in wholly new and more effective ways.
0: So how are media manipulators affecting journalism long-term? Are people on 4chan and Reddit and Russian hackers really picking away at the trust of mainstream media mastheads?
1: Well, One example. Uh, There's a guy who made up stories like about Hillary Clinton's health. And he knew they were made up. But the game was to start at 4chan or HN, then go up through uh, Infowars to Reddit, to Breitbart, to Fox News, and then at that point the rest of media say, "Well, everybody's talking about that Rory's health," <laughs> and by then it's too late because by then what's happened is that mainstream media have been co-opted by the trolls and the manipulators, and they've done what the trolls wanted. When we in big the, the paradox is when we in mainstream media uh, fact check and debunk these trollish bits of fake news, we play into their hands. They're delighted.
0: How devastating can the manipulation of the press and the manipulation of information be to democracy?
1: I'm quite worried about it. The next target in the United States, uh, we fear, is going to be the U.S. Census. The real goal of much of the manipulation in the U.S. has been disenfranchisement of voters, uh, voter suppression in the election themselves, uh, reducing the faith that we have in the election. That's what Putin and company have done. Mm. And now if you reduce the faith in the census that is the basis of our districting for our elections, which is already messed up now, uh, then we have a real crisis in democracy. I don't want to get too up, far up in the clouds, but but I, I, I tend to always go back to my lodestone as Gutenberg and the Gutenberg era. And I, and I think that we are seeing in the internet, again, I'm too old to know whether this will be true or not, but we're seeing potentially a Gutenbergian moment, a Wendepunkt in society. Uh, where there could be tremendous change. And if you consider life before Gutenberg and the printed book uh, and life afterwards, the notion of the nation, the notion of childhood because of education, the notion of the scientific revolution and reformation and religion, all changed at least coincident with the book. Uh, We could be going through something like that right now. So it may not just be misinformation. It could be that there's an institutional challenge going on. Certainly, there is resentment of institutions across many sectors of society. And to my mind, when we talk about news and trust, the reflex tends to be, let's make them trust news again. A lot of them didn't ever trust news. And the truth is that what really has to change here is not so much the public as the institutions themselves. So yes, I'm very concerned about uh, the long-term impact of this manipulation because it's just a symptom of perhaps a larger disease.
0: So how do we deal with the disease then? When asked how to navigate the current information swamp that is the internet, you wrote, rather than attacking the facts, sources, and accounts, merely tactics, we need to go after the real symptoms. What are those real symptoms and how do we address them?
1: The symptoms are anger. The symptoms are the ability to uh, tackle fear. Um, you know, one of the things that I say that I wish Facebook could do is to help make the stranger less strange. Because what the bad guys all do is exploit fear in an other, capital O. And unless we can meet people who aren't like us and understand that they are like us and that uh, we do have uh, a lot of goals in our lives that are similar. If we demonize them and treat them as, as, as something very strange, then it's very easy to find ourselves polarized. And again, the goal of the bad guys is a polarized society because that's a weak society. It's a society where you can tear down institutions and fill in power vacuums. I I don't want to sound like I'm wearing a tin hat again, but I think that we have to at least don the tin hat of the paranoids manipulating media so that we understand what their goals are.
0: Derek, when it comes to media manipulators, are there clear-cut examples in Australia? You know, we hear the left in America talking about Russian hackers and we talk about these Bernie bots
2: and Russian trolls, but in Australia, is, is there something that you see in the media and, and you see manipulation in the public sphere? I, I don't think we see that in any way to the same extent that we've seen it in other countries and, and uh, Australia has been following what's happened. A lot of us have been following what's happened overseas and people have been tracking say the use of PR and false false information and rumours as Affecting news reports here, but it's it's not like there has been the same kind of concerted effort that that has been made elsewhere. And I, I think Jeff makes this point, and others have too, that actually it, it's probably important to differentiate between the kind of manipulation that that is aimed at some political outcome and the kind of manipulation that's aimed at, say, some commercial outcome. Who knows what's happening behind the scenes on the commercial element? We 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 haven't had that kind of dramatic effect here, but it is. It is kind of important, I think, to track, to be aware of those two and track those differences.
0: But what about control? I think there's been a lot of talk about the control of information around refugee detention centres on Manus and Nauru. And if you go there, you know, so what what about control? Do you see control as having just as much of a devastating impact on information sharing as media manipulators?
2: Yeah, but that's not, that's something that to varying extents has has been a part of um, our environment and others for a number of years. That's not... I don't think that's a new even a new manifestation of this um of this this phenomenon that we refer to as fake news um and in fact that's even if you if you go back before the last few years and you look at say the control of information around detention centers, then it was journalists and and news organizations that were really pushing for the release of information from the Department of immigration and others um of of trying to get journalists. Onto Manus Island and elsewhere to look at the conditions in those centres, and as they would in any kind of environment which was seemed to be off limits for some reason. So, you know, I think that underlines that really important role that you've got people who are prepared to do that, who know what they're doing, and um, who will abide by certain um ethics and standards that that they've committed to for you know over a number of years it's uh that's the kind of the trust element but it's the fact that someone's prepared to do that and that we actually get that information is kind of a crucial aspect of of our environment
1: let me ask the outsiders question derek do you think that australia has not seen the same kind of vulnerability to fake news because i'll throw out a few choices one you're more isolated. Don't take that as an insult. It could be a real benefit. Uh, two, the stakes uh, the, uh, may not be that high at the moment. There isn't an election at the moment mm-hmm. that's kind of worth the bad guys going after. Uh, or three, you do things right here in a way that we don't know and we should learn in the rest of the world.
2: I wish I could say it was the the last. There, are, there are some elements, I guess, of our environment um, that that might lend themselves to that. So earlier, for example, we mentioned that that kind of structural approach that we take to the industry here about having having different sectors. There are problems in in the the, the rationale that we've that we've adopted for those sectors because those sectors are merging. But nevertheless, we have made this investment in public service broadcasting. We have got this commitment to Um, healthy private sector and we've got community media in various forms so we we've got this kind of inbuilt level of um, diversity and access to different platforms and different sources so uh, others have that but um, but it I think it seems to serve as well I don't know that we're that the isolation aspect um, gives us immunity I mean we we have seen we have seen cybercrime. We've seen examples of hacking into um, everything from our Bureau of Statistics to, um, you know, to, to private corporations. So I, I think we have to be vigilant about that. I think the isolation aspect doesn't um, doesn't give us immunity from it. Um, but uh, and I think your other point too about the the timing is, is possibly right, that um, maybe we'll see more concerted efforts in, in, around a, a, a kind of a political crunch time. But
1: how worried should you be? Uh,
2: I don't think we should panic, <laughs> but at the same time, um, I don't think we should just s- let it slide. I think that this is the the, the the need for examining what we do, how we do it, and um, trying to see whether the rationale of our approach actually fits this new environment, and in fact whether we we need to rethink things again.
0: Well, in Australia there's a public broadcaster, and in the United States we really don't have that, and I think it's probably fair to say we might never have a public broadcaster. Do you think that a perceived nonpartisan public broadcaster like the ABC or the BBC in the UK would benefit American democracy?
2: Uh, well, it's hard for me to say that not being not being too familiar with, with American society, Jeff's probably the best person to answer that. I mean, just from, from an Australian perspective, I think one of the ways in which we structure our industry is that we, we say we're going to have these different sectors. We're going to have public broadcasters. We're going to have commercial, but we're also going to have community and we're going to have you know private sector. And I think that serves us well. I think that they have different roles to play. I think that we could do some work on some kinds of standards that might apply across those different platforms, which we're not prepared to look at at the moment. But, um, but I think it serves Australian society well. But Jeff, you're probably a better place to answer that for the US.
1: I'm certainly jealous of the quality uh, and voice that come from the ABC and the BBC. However, my standard response right now is, could you imagine uh, government controlled media under the control of our current president of the United States? <laughs> Uh, well, I, think, I shudder to think what would happen. I think Fox News might actually be that. Uh, but, but there's no yes. It, certainly, it is the company uh, org, house organ of of Trump right now, and there are other things like that, and that's that's okay. But there isn't uh, government funding. There isn't government control. There isn't there 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 is at least some measure of independence. Now, indeed, I I argue, and to be clear here, I'm liberal and I'm media, but I argue that. Um, there are many communities in the United States that are underserved, uh, starting with African Americans and Latino Americans and immigrants and LGBTQ Americans, and the list goes on and on and on. But that list also includes conservative Americans, who, as we saw in this election, felt quite disenfranchised, that they weren't represented and reflected. Thus, it was impossible for us to have a conversation of intellectual honesty with them, of uncomfortable truths. And I think that there's an opportunity... Uh, to fill the vacuum that so far is filled by Fox News, Breitbart, Drudge, Infowars, and worse, uh, we should add into that conservative media sphere a responsible, fact-based, journalistic, conservative media outlet, a reporting outlet uh, that would compete in that world and create some pressure. Uh, We in liberal media made the first mistake of not admitting we were liberal. That's one of the reasons we weren't trusted. Another reason probably was Watergate. We, we destroyed a Republican president. Who deserved it? Um, uh, but, but my own parents didn't trust the Washington Post and the New York Times. And what did we leave them instead? That's our fault.
0: Yeah, I, I really want to talk to you a bit about, quote-unquote, advocacy journalism. During the last presidential election, you didn't shy away from your support for the Democratic candidate, Hillary Clinton. Historically, we think of journalists as being unbiased and covering political candidates in a fair and balanced way. What made you move away from this traditional model of political coverage? And would you consider yourself an advocacy
1: journalist? I violated just about every journalistic canon there is. I volunteered for Hillary Clinton, Clinton's campaign in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, a former big steel town. I gave money to the campaign. Uh, we didn't do this back in the day. This was this was uh, uh, not something that a journalist was 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 supposed to do because we supposedly were objective. Well, I spent a lot of time in journalism school seminars. at... at arguing that point, and we've long since, many of us have long since come to the idea that objectivity is an impossibility. In public broadcasting in the UK and here in Australia, I think you have a a sense of impartiality. Uh, Even that, I think, might be uh, an ethereal goal to reach. Um, I think the transparency is critical, And, and again, I think that we made a mistake in liberal media of not saying that our worldview was primarily liberal. But what happened as a surprise to me in going to Bethlehem PA every weekend uh, to canvas voters and to register voters was that I saw uh, a world that I didn't see otherwise as a journalist. As a journalist, we separate ourselves from the world. We think we are kind of above it, frankly, and, and a little bit inhuman. You know, we don't have opinions. We don't, we don't, <laughs> uh, we're, not, we're not like you mortals. Um, well, because I cared, I saw the world differently. And because I had a stand, I also saw media differently. And again, I want to emphasize that there are many communities in the United States that are underserved far before you know, privileged white me. But as a Hillary Clinton supporter, I never saw myself in media. Media's narrative about Hillary Clinton was that oh, nobody likes her, uh, nobody wants to vote for her, they just have to vote for her. Well, that wasn't true of me and many people I knew who worked on the campaign. We were enthusiastic about Hillary Clinton. I got a small sense of what it was like to feel disenfranchised in media. And certainly there are other communities that feel, have felt that for eternity, and there are some that feel that now in the political climate we have. And it was actually a very educational experience for me, so I'm glad I did it.
0: You kind of wrote a Christmas card to Hillary Clinton, and in it you talked about how journalists are supposed to deal with the post-Trump world, and you said we will need to learn new skills, how to resist unjust rule, how to protect those who need protection, how to make the unaccountable accountable. But aren't these things journalists should be doing and should have been doing all along?
1: Yes, but this goes back to your question, which you're trying to get out of me, about advocacy. Uh, can journalists be advocates? Uh, I come to believe now, yes, that we can be. And the fact that we always have been. We've always been for the little guy and for justice and truth and um, and against power for its own sake. So I think that we always have been advocates. Indeed, I would argue that if it's not advocacy, it's not journalism, to this extent. If all you're doing is saying that a fire occurred on the corner of X and Y streets, uh, and that's too bad for the people who own the building, and God forbid anyone was hurt, but there's a a limited sphere of effect around that fire. Now, television tends to cover these fires, especially in the United States, like crazy because they love orange flames on TV. Mm. But if you really ask how much impact that fire has on the rest of the community, next to nil. Unless, of course, there's some trend there, unless there's arson, unless there's a, a neglect in building standards, unless there's a bigger story to be had, but then you go into advocacy, then you're saying that there's a danger to the public because then this fire is an indication of that larger danger. Uh, I think that journalism that matters, one way or the other, advocates for communities to be able to build a better life. And the rest is either is stenography or PR.
0: Derek, how will the Center for Media Transition go about
2: researching and fighting this new media battlefield? Um, well, the starting point I think is for us to is to work across those different disciplines. So to say, well, you can't just study this as a bunch of journalists or a bunch of lawyers in in your own domains. So actually, you've got to look at where these things intersect. Um, so, and we've started um, our our centre by also working closely with engineering and IT to try and understand how changes in technology affect. Um, affect the way that journalists work, a way uh, affect um, how lawyers will work, but um, but also will in fact affect business models as well. It's uh, th- those kinds of changes in technology are kind of crucial. So um, we're we're kind of constructing a program that that focuses on three things. It it focuses on um, journalism best practice and innovation. It focuses on. Um, adaptation of regulation to meet this environment and then we'll focus on business models as well because um, those three things need to um, need to be considered but I, but our approach is to say well okay technology runs across all of those areas because it, it impacts all of them so um, we get, we're going to try to approach it through this kind of multidisciplinary approach um, working with um Partners in industry, the kind of people that um, that Peter and I have worked with um, on and off over the years, as well as um, uh, building some some strong research contacts within the academic realm. so we've we've got that focus on industry practice um, and a, and a kind of an interdisciplinary approach, and that's that's I think what defines us.
0: As well as researching the new, I understand one of the roles for the centre will be to identify those elements of the old media landscape worth preserving. Before I let you guys go today, I was wondering when you look back on the so-called old media landscape, what kind of journalism practice do you see as worth preserving?
2: Well, I guess the the one that most people um, cite most often is investigative journalism about that that role, that kind of fourth estate role of holding governments, corporations, and other institutions to account. Um, but beyond that, I think there's also, uh, yeah, one one of the real challenges is is, is retaining local news, the the kind of uh, reliable information on say what's happening at the local council or what's happening in main roads or something of that kind that that it may not fall into the investigative journalism category but in fact it could be at risk if we if this trend continues of um, journalism as we know it uh, uh, crumbling in the sense of, of the jobs going now that's not to say that journalism won't be practiced or that people won't get information from somewhere but I guess what This this aspect of preservation that we've got is we want to see some of that kind of commitment to um, the work that will actually shine a light on corruption, but also insight into things that matter for people in their communities, that, that actually that's still done and there are ways of doing that, even if the ways of doing it aren't, aren't what they were in the past and the people that are doing it aren't, aren't who they were in the past.
0: How much do you think is, is really just, when it comes to local communities, small communities not being covered, how much of that is, is literally just the money not being there to send journalists out to local city council meetings?
2: Yeah, well, look, there's two elements there. There's one about the, the, the money not being there, the other is not, not caring. And I don't know, the journalists that I speak to are still interested in... Uh, in those issues about what happens, what happens in councils, what happens in the courts, it's something that that, that journalists are trained to be concerned about, and I don't, I don't think that um, that uh, the media companies that we have not abandoned the commitment to that. It's just it's the other element you mentioned, which is where where's the money, where's the funding for that in this kind of transition of um, advertising revenue away from traditional media and towards um, technology platforms. Um, that's that's a phenomenon that 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 has a great impact on the number of journalist jobs that we know, um, and I I don't think it's a case that media companies don't care about that. I think it's this is the real challenge about that that um, evolving technology and the business models that haven't yet been developed to adapt to that new environment.
0: Jeff, as well as begging your students to adapt and change with the times, what do you hope they they hold on to from you know journalists like you?
1: Our founding dean at my uh, school at CUNY, Steve Shepard, said that we teach the eternal verities of journalism. And, and I think that that's still true. And I ask the students every year what they think those, those eternal truths are. And I tell them to question everything we teach them. Challenge it. But don't throw it all out. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot here that's worth holding on to. Primarily, I want them to understand how we got here. Oftentimes it's following the money, it's knowing the business models and the motivations that occur there. But at the end of the day, journalism is about service. It's about serving communities and finding the best ways to do that. And that can never change, otherwise it's not journalism.
0: Jeff, thank you so much for being on Fourth Estate. Thank you, honored to be here. Derek, thank you so much. All right. thanks for having us. That's it from us on Fourth Estate. Remember, you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate Podcast on iTunes or your favorite download app. On The Money is up next, my name is Miles Herbert. I'll catch you guys again next week.